someone had said to me that you got to watch around this season because the crucifixion is such a very brutal and difficult thing, how people might just hear that. I was preaching one Sunday in the Newport Church. And I used a word that was common to my childhood. I don't know what story it was telling. I can't even remember the story to tell you. But as I was telling the story, I used a word, put your seatbelts on, booger. <laughs> I used the word booger. And I used it in its clearest sense. And there was a lady there who I loved who watched our kids, Shirley. Shirley's now gone on to be with the Lord. Shirley was the sweet lady in the church with her sister Norma, who's still living, who always brought the cookies to church, always did the meals, always did the right thing. She lived in a farmhouse, had dairy cows and all this. But just the nicest person in the world. And I said the word booger. And right in the middle of service, Shirley started choking. <laughs> she got physically sick. <laughs> and when I was shaking hands after the service, she came up to me and said, don't ever say that word again in a church service. I've got to go home. I'm upset. Some of you know that I lived with my grandfather and grandmother. In 1975, 74, Grandpa died. In 1974, I was 12 years old. My grandmother was so arthritic, constricted to a wheelchair. I mean, literally, could not get out of the wheelchair. Had to be helped out of bed in the morning, put in the wheelchair, taken into the living room, helped out of the chair, onto the couch. That bad arthritis. Her hands were things you've never seen before. If she took off her slippers, you would be physically disturbed. The only way she could stay home was if somebody stayed with her. At 12 years of age, I'm happy to tell you I volunteered. Spit out her pills every night, gave her an insulin injection in the morning, set out the pills for four different times to have pills, woke her up in the morning, and then got myself off to school to boot. But I didn't know why she kept next to her table a pair of side cutters. Her feet were so buckled under that her toenails would grow in a deformed way that you could never imagine. And somebody had to cut them. And I can remember the first time I did that because she needed it done that she sat there and cried while I did it. Because here's her grandson, 12 years of age, doing what she would never imagine that her grandson would have to do. I want you to imagine for a minute Jesus. He comes to a meal, he eats with his disciples. He gets up from the table, he puts a towel around him, he takes a basin and a pitcher of water and he pours the water into the basin and he tells his disciples one at a time, come here. I am going to wash your feet. Of course, you heard it. Peter says, 
you'll never wash my feet. That's not happening. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you've got nothing to do with me. And Peter says, then wash my head and my hands and my feet as well. It's a humbling thing to have somebody do that kind of service. For some people, it can make them physically sick. Jesus served his disciples at the worst time of his life. I want you to think about it. It's Passover. About two million people had come to Jerusalem. It's Passover. It's a festival. And John, the writer of this gospel tonight, wants us to know something. He wants us to know and to understand that Jesus is the Passover lamb. That lamb that we read about in Exodus where that would be killed and the blood would be put over the doorpost. John wants you and I to understand that Jesus is that lamb. He's about to be killed. And there in a small room with his disciples, he begins to tell them, you know what you're eating tonight is feeding on my body. It's drinking my blood. It's the final Passover and I am it. And Jesus that night began to point forward to what was going to take place just in very short order. Look at what John says. Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of the world and to go to his father. He loved those who were his in the world and he loved them to the end. Jesus wants us to know that this Passover is going to be about him. Jesus wants us to know that the Passover lamb is him. In the book of John, it says that John the Baptist is out one day, and he looks and sees Jesus coming, and listen to what he says. He says, behold the lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world. One day, Jesus' disciples are standing around, and, and here comes Jesus walking down the street, and somebody said, behold the lamb of God. John wants us to understand who Jesus is. Jesus says, at Passover time, the temple will be destroyed and one day be rebuilt. And his disciples think, what's he talking about? The building's going to come down? And Jesus was trying to tell them about himself, about his physical body. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Pharisees said, it's taken 46 years to build the temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? But they didn't understand Easter, did they? They didn't understand the news of the resurrection. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, the time for him to depart to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His hour had come. His, his time had come. In the chapter before this, Jesus had said to his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. When he was praying, he said, now my soul's troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I've come to this hour. You see, everything in Jesus' life was leading up to this point. His purpose-driven life was driven for this one purpose, to die. It's his time to go to the Father, not time travel. It's, it's the continuance, rather, of, of an existence that began before he was even born at Christmas, what we celebrate as Christmas. Jesus knew he was going from this place 
to another place. From this existence and this locale geographically to an eternal existence with his father. But nobody else could see that. You ever notice how much emphasis we place in our culture on the temporary nature of our lives? You ever notice how, how, how we say things like, we're born to die? You never notice how we say things like the one who dies with the most toys wins? <laughs> you, ever, you ever listen real close to the things that we say to ourselves because one day it'll be our time? A few years back, there was a, a country song, and I forget who sang it. But he found that the, the, the main character in the song found out that he had cancer in his 40s. You'll remember this when I start to tell you the lines. He says this in the song, I went skydiving, I went Rocky Mountain climbing, I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu, and I love deeper, I spoke sweeter, I gave forgiveness, I've been denying. Then he says, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. Problem is, that's a bill of goods that our culture's told us that isn't true. And Jesus knew it. It helps to sell Chevy trucks and some cans of beer, but it just ain't so. We weren't created just for this life. We were created for so much more, and Jesus knew it for a fact. God doesn't create us for three score and ten so he can move on to the next victim. No, he creates us for eternity. The psalmist said things like this. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of the days that were formed for me. Let's just stop and understand all of the debate surrounding abortion and, and, and when does life begin. The psalmist just said that life begins before you could have ever imagined because God saw you before you were even a twinkle in your parents' eye. Yes, birth initiates your journey into this chapter of your life, but this isn't all there is. There's so much more than just that. And Jesus knew his hour had come, if you look at the scripture up there, that his hour had come not to die, but to depart. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come, having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them to the end. You know, I love... <coughs> what Paul says to Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy and he says these words and I've been thinking them a lot this past couple of weeks. I fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. You know, when I get to the end of my life, I hope I can say that to you. I hope I can say I fought a good fight. I finished my course and I have kept the faith. But why don't you look at what Jesus did? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Imagine knowing that the last thing you're about to do in life 
as ugly as it could be, was actually love. Remember what Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. When it says here that Jesus loved them to the end, that's what he's talking about, laying down his life for those he loves. Jesus isn't going to grin and bear it to the end. Jesus is going to love us to the uttermost. And the act of love that he is about to perform as he's sitting there with his disciples, washing their feet and sharing the bread and sharing the cup with them is the most supreme act of love you could ever imagine. So I'm going to give you about 30 seconds just to look at that. Because that's what Jesus knew was coming. think about this Jesus has a perfect love for the most imperfect group of followers such as us he has a complete love for an incomplete band of people called humans Jesus's love is infinite it's perfect and it's eternal and we look back on the events of the crucifixion and we see that love in that way. It's perfect. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, you can't understand right now what I'm telling you, but you will when it happens. I wonder if that day when they looked up at him on that cross, if they got it. I wonder if they understood the perfect love that was seen in what he had done. We're in the second verse, and I've only covered one so far. <laughs> Look at what it says. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Do you notice anything there? Do you notice that at the very moment that love is about to have its greatest expression in the death of Jesus upon the cross, at that very moment, when love is to have its greatest expression, evil creeps into the picture and it tries to destroy that love you see Judas had allowed the lure of money and the whisper of Satan to get in the way of seeing how much Jesus loved him when love is revealed in its clearest way you can count on sin to find a way to obscure it don't you think it's odd that John, the gospel writer, gives us this beautiful picture of Jesus sitting with his disciples at a table? He gives us one verse, Jesus loved them to the end, and then the next thing is, Satan had entered into Judas. I mean, it's just the strangest thing. It's like your worst Thanksgiving dinner ever was failing, right? John tells us a lot of things that we ought to note. But we really ought to pay attention to this one. Jesus had earlier said to his disciples, I chose you, the twelve of you, and yet one of you is a devil. That ought to make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Satan enters into Judas. One of those twelve, yes, 
We know it's coming because we've heard the story so many times, but nobody else at the table did aside from Jesus. And here at the dinner table where Jesus is saying the most loving words he can say, John tells us what's about to happen. John tells us the devil had entered into Judas' heart to betray Jesus. Let's be clear for a minute. God didn't force Judas into this. Satan tempted Judas into this. Adam and Eve didn't get forced by God to sin in the garden. Their own desires led them to be sinners in the garden. And the conception of that sin became sin, and that sin, when they grew up and became full age, brought them death. It'll be the same thing for us. And Judas's 30 pieces of silver and some pats on the back from the religious leaders of his day was enough to conceive sin in Judas's heart. And it birthed the greatest story of sin that I think we've ever heard, that Judas would betray Jesus. Look at that third verse. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going back to God. Do you remember how John started this gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. John sets it all up for us, and now Jesus is telling us, yes, I'm that Word, and I was with God, but now I'm going back to be with God. I've completed my task. The book's been written. The story is done. The God of the Bible who laid aside his glory for the mess that was called us is going to do what he came to do. The one who took on human nature like a secondhand worn-out coat in order to wash our feet. The one who came from the throne of heaven and was going back there, but he came to wash our feet. He did it for a reason. It's, it's, it's unmistakable why he did it. He did it because he loves us. He loved Peter. He loved Matthew. He loved Bartholomew. <laughs> he loved each one of them, and he loved Judas. Please don't mistake Jesus taking the basin and the cloth and the water to wash his disciples' feet. Don't take that as a side trip on the way to his destination. Don't understand that to be something that he just did before he went to the cross. Because in that basin and in that cloth and in that water and in his act of service, Jesus is telling us why he came. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. That's precisely why he came. Don't make that mistake. The reason I don't want you to make that mistake is because imperfect people like me and you can experience the perfect and infinite love of Jesus Christ if we don't make that mistake. You got to understand the words in the verse that Jesus said. He said, knowing that his hour had come. 
and the time for him to depart to his father. He loved them to the end. When it says hour, it means a critical point in time. Jesus knew that hour had come. Now it was time to show his love. And the time had come for him to depart. Not to stop, but to move on to the other place. But most of all, he knew his hour had come to depart to the Father and to love on his way out. It means to show to us really God's true moral character. It's to show us that Jesus is willing to forfeit his own rights, his own privileges, his own life for us. There's actually one word that, that says it best, and that is the word sacrifice. That's what it is, sacrifice. And so tonight I'd encourage you to remember that Jesus served us by loving us to the point of death. And when you leave, and go on with your life serving that way.